the medicine, there's no hiding from it. It shows you what you need to see because you know deep down when you're acting a certain way, if you have, you know, if you have a big ego, if you have to be in control of a room, if you have to get the last word in, all these things we call your ego that gets in the way, you can't hide from it. To be able to take a situation that felt like the end of my life and to be able to bring it full circle and to give back and see all along the way, you know, it led us to where we are today is the most humbling gift that I I could ever be given. This is Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Marcus and Amber Capone are game changers in psychedelic medicine. After seven tours in the United States Navy SEAL Special Operations, Marcus came home without realizing that something was seriously wrong. In the years after his service, Marcus began dealing with anxiety, depression, and neurological damage that seemed too far to come back from. Marcus and Amber began searching for a solution. Traditional antidepressants, therapies, and treatments weren't working. Then, Amber found a small treatment center in Mexico, focused on using Ibogaine as a therapeutic healing tool. From the moment Marcus had his first trip, his mind instantly reset and he got his life back. Today, Marcus and Amber are the founders of VETS, formerly known as Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Their goal is to transform veteran healthcare by finding meaningful alternative solutions for mild traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. Marcus and Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Ronan, thanks for having us. Thank you, Ronan. Great to be here. Marcus, take us through the experience of being a SEAL and and particularly coming out the other side and and what led you to co-found VETS with Amber. When I enlisted, it was prior to 9-11. So we had, you know, really no idea what we're about to embark on, I guess you want to say, or, you know, what was really going to happen. I mean, I entered the military uh, to, to be a SEAL, you know, not because I grew up in this environment of this, you know, patriotic you know, household, but I just wanted to do something that was bigger and better and exciting. And um, I was in third phase of BUDS. BUDS is uh, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. You start with about 175 guys, you end with about 30. And we had made it to third phase and that's when the towers came down and they actually, the instructors at that time allowed us to come into the building and watch actually the live video or the live feed of what was going on. We didn't know what was going on. We were students, we were tired. We almost thought it was a, a hoax. Um, we thought this was like part of training. <laughs> then, you know, reality set in and the instructors kind of sat us down and talked to us and told us what was about to happen, that we were going to go to war. And you could see it on all these instructors' faces that they, they were... They were definitely in a different place than we were students. We were just students trying to get through this, you know, rigorous training course. But uh, the instructors who had, you know, already been in the SEAL teams for five, well, for more like 10 or 15 years, really knew what was happening. Because prior to 9-11, there really wasn't a whole lot of fighting going on, maybe in the early 90s. But there really wasn't a war uh, for a long time. And so um, I just remember the look on their faces and the demeanor 
man, these guys were for real. And um, we graduated. Uh, we went through advanced training, which is called SEAL qualification training, SQT. Uh, and then our class got split up. Half of us went to the East Coast and half of us went to the West Coast. And uh, we started in our first platoons and we trained for two years and we all went on our first deployments. And from that point, I, um, I did uh, seven combat tours. I went over to another place, Naval Special Warfare Development Group. And uh, I'd say right around 2010 is when I started just experiencing some things that I don't think were normal to me. I didn't feel like Marcus anymore. <laughs> I was super burnt out. I was really stressed out. I was having a lot of anxiety. Uh, I was forgetting a lot of things. You know, I was drinking heavily. I was extremely stressed out and it was time for a break. And so just as a family, we decided, you know, why don't we go to the West Coast for a couple years and I'll become an instructor and we'll just, you know, we'll take a break and, you know, assess from there. And we did that. So we were in Virginia Beach for 10 years and then we moved to, to San Diego and it was great. That's actually when things started getting worse. And one of the guys that I worked with, he's like, why don't you go see the command psychologist? You know, you're depressed, you're angry, you're isolating. And so I went and talked to the psych and uh, they sent me to a brain clinic. And that's when I first got prescribed my first uh, antidepressant. And also something to help me sleep and then also something to help me focus. So, and, you know, from there, I think just things got worse. You know, there's a new book out, but it's about the pandemic of antidepressants and how they can make a person worse than what we, they were to a point of where it's unfixable, including like making them, if they have bipolar, making them get to a point of, of having bipolar where they can't reverse that effect. So for me taking antidepressants were, were bad. They weren't helping me at all. They made me, they made me worse. And God forbid if I forgot one a day or two, I mean, it was like, you know, you want to crawl up the wall. It was one of the worst experiences ever. Side effects of some of those medications are a uh, high risk of suicide, suicidality. You know, who knows what these things are doing to us. But for me, it was just, you know, they didn't work. So I was obviously had uh, diagnosed with, you know, major depressive disorder, or, or treatment-resistant depression where, you know, it, it just started spiraling and it just started getting worse. And so I went to another brain clinic. I had my brain scanned, not just uh, through MRIs. I had some spec scans done to see what the volume of my brain was like. Had some come back in the last couple of years where it started showing. I had markers for everything, you know, post-traumatic stress, uh, major depressive disorder, uh, high anxiety, bipolar 2, you know, and it scared the crap out of me, honestly, running like, what are you supposed to think, right? When the brain doctor comes out and says, oh, by the way, here you go. This is what you got. And I think the more you get told of the, the issues you have, then you start thinking about the problems that you have. So it just exasperates everything. So now you have some brain trauma and then you do have some anxiety and depression. And then now you're just getting more because they're just telling you that this is what you have to do for the rest of your life. And finally, thank goodness, Amber and uh, a doctor at the time, uh, they were working in the background to figure this out. And they, um, lucky enough, found a clinic in Mexico that were treating, I guess, some veterans for post-traumatic stress. 
And the doctor, I believe, you know, thought, well, every time that these guys are going through a treatment, they come out of the treatment with zero post-traumatic stress, zero depression, zero anxiety. So, you know, what it is, is, as you know, it's psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's a lot of different medicines out there that we can use. The one that I was introduced to, um, which we joke about now, which is called the nuclear option, was Ibogaine. Wow, what a journey. Uh, But what I didn't know is that there are a lot of levels of psychedelic assisted therapy. And usually like Iboga or Ibogaine is not the one that people go to first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you went big. But the nuclear option is what special operations guys need. Right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we are not like everyone else. And for our guys to go do that job takes a certain individual. So to take that individual and now make make that person right again, you know, you need that also that extra special medicine. Well, that extra special medicine is definitely Ibogaine. And Ronan, it man, it radically changed my life. It stopped the bleeding put the tourniquet on and it got me to start looking at things differently. You know, I've definitely hit some, some speed bumps since then, but what that experience did was get me on the right path that I can always revert back to that experience forever. Thank you for sharing that. Amber, I'm very curious to know uh, what it was like being in your shoes, like even from the get go of, uh, Marcus making the decision, I'm sure it was both of you, so excuse the language, of joining the military. How did you feel about that? What was it like watching his evolution, not necessarily in a positive sense, going through the military, coming through the military through to 2010, you know, when I guess Marcus recognized in himself that he wasn't feeling himself. My, my guess is you probably saw things changing incrementally up to that point. Well, it's been nothing like what I had in, envisioned it would be because we've been together since I was 17 and he was 20. And we had amicably decided to part ways when he decided to go into the military. And unlike Marcus, I came from a very patriotic family where like my great grandmother had five brothers and three of them were killed in world war two, but all five served. And so I grew up with this really deep appreciation for the military, but I didn't think that it was something that I ever want to be involved with. So when he decided to enlist, I thought, well, this is a really great time for me to, you know, just be a young lady and do what I want to do. And then I found out that we were expecting our son. And so within a one year period, I went from being a college sophomore to being a mother, a wife and supporting Marcus while he went through BUDS training. And then of course there was 9-11. So, you know, it was a really wild year. I had no idea what we were getting into I was just trying to make the next right decision. And so, you know, what I see now 20 years later is that it is the biggest blessing of my life. And it is, I feel like the purpose of my life. And to be able to take a situation that felt like the end of my life and to be able to bring it full circle and to give back and see all along the way, you know, it led us to where we are today is the most humbling gift that I I could ever 
be given. Yeah, it was nothing like I thought it would be. <laughs> I feel like, you know, my motto all along was if someone else can do it, I can do it. If there's a, you know, another spouse that can figure it out, I can figure it out. And so I did that and that dysfunction became our normal. As we, you know, tried to become a family, a normal family, it was increasingly difficult to even understand what that looked like. So Marcus was struggling, we were struggling, we had spent so much time apart that we really didn't even know each other. And, you know, our kids learned that dysfunction. And so as the years ticked by and deaths increased through, you know, we've been to so many war funerals and, you know, that seemed normal to us. But what a family does on a weekend didn't. So as we all were just reeling in this transition, Marcus started struggling to a point that I thought, I don't know if this is going to work. And at that time, I'd been with him for over half of my life and he was my life. His dreams became my life. And I couldn't imagine myself detaching from him. I never wanted that. But at the same time, you know, I, I had to think about our kids. And so at that time, you know, they were teenagers and our son was acting out a lot, uh, which was very difficult for Marcus and for our relationship. And our daughter was also having, you know, a lot of just challenges with the way our life was. And so she said to me one night, how much longer do we have to do this? And I just said, not one more day. At that point, I started trying to get Marcus into all these different brain clinics. During the height of our struggles, a friend's brain autopsy was released in the community and it showed that he had a pattern of blast injury from, you know, weapons fire, explosions, IEDs, whatever. The term CTE was also thrown around, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's what you commonly hear NFL players diagnosed with. And those are both degenerative in nature, but it was also a bit of a death sentence, it seemed. And nobody wanted to talk about that. So overnight, I became 100% more compassionate for Marcus because even though he was struggling and our family was suffering, I suddenly felt like maybe this struggle is beyond his control. There's no amount of guilt, threats, shaming, criticizing that I can load on him that he isn't already feeling tenfold. And so I just decided to come alongside him and, you know, fight for him. Now, he didn't have that same level of compassion because he was very much in survival mode, but he agreed to go to the brain clinics and I had a westernized approach initially. So I didn't believe in the pharmaceuticals necessarily, but I thought, well, surely if this is a brain condition and not an emotional or psychological condition, a brain clinic can help with that. And one, you know, here, another there really wasn't doing the trick. So it was becoming clear to me that I couldn't continue to take my kids on this journey even though I wanted to help Marcus and I was compassionate for him, it was not sustainable. And so I, I had visited him at a brain clinic. He was actually at three different places simultaneously. 
and he was worse than ever. And I left. I left without even telling him. I got on a plane and I went back to our home in Texas. My mom was with my kids and I conference called my dad, who was Marcus's football coach, and who always said to me, you don't quit anything. And so, you know, all along, all those years where deployments were tough and living the life of a SEAL spouse was tough, that's sometimes what kept me going. I, I just, my dad, you know, don't quit. And I called him with my mom uh, there with me, and I told them that I had decided to quit. And I knew what that meant for Marcus. It was like a death sentence in itself. I knew that he needed the stabilization of a family and me in particular, just, you know, if I removed myself from his life, I felt like he was a dead man. And I told them that. I said, he's probably got two years left and I'm just working right now on my plan to leave and forgiving myself for the inevitable. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if he'll take his own life. I don't know if he'll drive drunk and get in a bar fight. You know, someone will kill him, he'll kill some. I, I don't know, but I know it's not going to end well. And, um, you know, I was coming to the realization of that when I remembered one other SEAL who had done this therapy outside of the U.S. And I thought, if I can get him to agree to this, then I will know I really have tried everything. He was running out of funding at the brain clinic that he was at and he needed to come home. So at that point, I just pretty much gave him an ultimatum. This was in September or October of 2017. I said, you know, if you try this one more thing, you can come home. And he agreed to do it. He had heard about it in the past, but it just seemed too weird, too unknown to him. And he didn't think it would work. We were also more comfortable with a medical, you know, a Western feel. And this felt so like just such a roll of the dice. So he came home and that, month between you know him being home and him receiving ibogaine therapy it was brutal i was just basically begging him like please keep holding on and you know he he left for the experience and i just remember taking him to the airport him getting on the plane and just being like that's it i <laughs> put it all on the table i have nothing else and so when it worked I was completely blown away. Wow. That's intense. That's a, I don't even know how to describe it. Growing up in a patriotic American family where I imagine attitudes to drugs were fairly negative. How much of a hurdle was it to be like, all right, I began therapy, psychedelics. They're like, you know, there's like the natural, like uh, we're tuned into Western medicine and this certainly doesn't fit within the standard of what we're used to. And was there any sort of hiccup there? I'm curious to know, Amber, your thoughts and, and Marcus, what your thoughts were at that point as well. At that time, I felt so desperate that I would have tried anything. And I really didn't even put a lot of thought into it. But you're right. I grew up in a very conservative Christian household. And this was a complete, it's completely buffet. At that point, I felt like I had nothing to lose. And when, when I encounter 
you know, naysayers now or doubters or anyone that maybe was raised like me. I just say, you know, count your blessings. If you've never loved someone so much that you're willing to try anything to save them, then you are absolutely abundantly blessed. Yeah, I think, Amber, what did it take me a year? I think it was almost a year for me to to commit to it because I think we had spoken about it, but I never thought it was serious. I thought it was one of those things where, oh yeah, it's it's not real. It's out there. I've heard about this, but you know, I'll never have the opportunity to do it or it just sounds a little bit crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't understand it initially. So it took me time to really, you know, do my research, do my reading, understand what actually was happening here, but I still wasn't convinced. And I really wasn't convinced right until the very end where I was at another brain clinic and I was just so fed up with nothing working. Like I just thought, this is how it's going to be for the next 40 or 50 years that I'm going to continuously go to these brain clinics. I'm going to take medication. I may get a little bit better. I may have some days of clarity and happiness and then more days of, of grief and depression. And I said, man, I, I'm not going to be able to go through this forever. And so I remember us having an argument and just going, you know what? I'll go try this thing because who in their right mind thinks that if you're just going to take this one pill, it's going to change, <laughs> change the way you think for the rest of your life. Of course, we know there's a lot more to it than just take the pill. Can you help me understand like what it was like in your head? And I'm going to ask the same question of you, Amber, which is like you talk about the struggle and uh, there's no, no doubt in my mind that the struggle was real. But can you translate that into like instances that people could understand like what did it feel like to be in your head marcus and where was it different from you were before you know enlisting in the seals and, and amber the same thing which was like how did this play out in your relationship and the family dynamic because i'm sure it was extremely traumatic i think initially it was terrifying first off just as an active duty special operations guy like we don't talk about what we did we don't talk about what we do there's a code there, right? And that was the hardest and still the hardest part for me is that, am I doing something that breaks the code? Because the community was is so important, was so important um, and is so important to us. And, you know, I don't want to be the guy out there beating my chest and saying, look at me. And so I've had to convince myself and really it was through, not me, it was others that I worked with saying, like, you have to do this is just really just telling people like, hey, I struggled and this is what we did to figure it out. And so if that can help, which it's helped over 250 guys now, just by me telling my story, it's nothing special. I'm not special. You know, I have guys that have done twice and three times as many combat deployments as I did. And so, I mean, simple stuff like not being able to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, plenty of times, Amber, I mean, how many times do we go through just like me just literally lying in bed go, I can't get up today. Like, I can't go to work. I don't want to do anything at all. I just want to sit here because nothing's going to change. Uh, I'm no good at anything, right? Like, I was a really good SEAL at one point in my life when I was actually like with it, right? And then I was a decent athlete at one point in my life, but not anymore, right? And so what's the worth? You really start losing the want to do anything. So like I used to love to work out. I used to love, you know, to surf. I used to love to play golf. And so that's the part that I think resonates with most people because 
you know, many of the guys that I talk to, many of my buddies or just others that are very interested in this say, hey, I identify what you're saying. Like, I have no more passion for anything. I have no more confidence. You know, I even struggle like that now in the private sector as, as a quote unquote, you know, business guy. I just don't feel like I have the confidence to deal with the other parties. Because, you know, when I was a CEO, I felt like I was at the top of my game there. And I had confidence in doing whatever I wanted, wherever I wanted. But now, now I just feel like I get beat down on a regular basis. That triggers a whole bunch of responses, particularly from men, you know, uh, who throughout mm, kind of modern history, we've always been considered the provider, you know, and we define our self-worth by our ability to provide. And if you can't do that, and if you can't perform at the top of your game, not only does it make you feel like crap, but it also starts to challenge your sense of identity and your sense of self-worth. And so you can see how that becomes a very, very powerful negative cycle. And certainly that's not specific to men, but, uh, it seems more common to the male experience in, in this world. Amber, what was it like on, on your side? Uh, listen to Marcus talk. I can imagine how frustrating and, and challenging it must be to to be, you know, in the shoes of the partner to someone who's like that. Luckily, I was raised with a foundation of faith that is so important to me. And I feel like for everyone just to have a connection with something bigger than them is such a critical piece of withstanding those times. And so as our life was spiraling out of control, I was leaning in. And if I hadn't done that, I don't know where my headspace would have been. And I don't know what the outcome would have been. But I fought back. I fought back in a spiritual realm. And I put all of my energy into that. And so I I have worked significantly at uh, improving my mindset, my neural pathways. And that was a really huge sustaining factor in being able to withstand those times. I did not have a pity party for myself. I stopped talking to my friends about this situation or that situation. Can you believe what he did? No, like I, no one could believe it. But that's what I was attracting because that's what I was talking about. And so I became 1000% solution focused and positivity focused. And I just refuse to be drugged down into the mire. So as Marcus would spiral more into the darkness, I was searching, searching, searching for more light. And my light was able to overcome his darkness in so many ways and so many circumstances. So, you know, my headspace. remains pretty clear. I basically stopped life during the worst parts. And it wasn't to have a breakdown. It was to have a breakthrough. The way you were talking about like clearing your neural pathways and all that kind of stuff, you know, it sounds like language of people who do have psychedelic experiences as as well and feel free to not answer this question and we can edit it out if you don't want it out there but uh, has this experience opened you up to trying psychedelic therapies because for me personally like I, I may have been depressed at some points in my life i may have had like a mental health diagnosis that could have been diagnosed but i never did but by and large my path to, to psychedelics and metaphysics and, and and this whole sphere has been just on a quest to 
enhance my life and develop deeper understanding and be more empathetic and be more creative. And just curious to know if you have had psychedelic therapy or psychedelic experiences. This is a question that I get asked frequently. And it's always an interesting reaction when I say, no, I have not had a psychedelic experience myself. I feel like um, the reasons for that are two or threefold at minimum, but, um, you know, primarily I don't feel called to do that. I have other spiritual practices that are super important in my life. And I feel that psychedelics are a vessel to get to a higher understanding of self, of creator, of, you know, why we're all here. And I am absolutely tapping into to understanding that and that understanding I can find within myself and I haven't needed external things to assist at least not yet now if I ever feel called to do that I know firsthand like from seeing the power and there are certainly times that I can look back on in my life and say that would have been a really great time for a really powerful psychedelic experience but right now I don't feel called to do that. And then there's also the element of just understanding the brevity of this movement, especially as it pertains to veterans. And this is just the beginning. And so I feel like as we're in this kind of really slow, awkward dance with lawmakers, legislators, policymakers, whatever. I don't want them to ever be like, oh, they just drank the Kool-Aid. They all drank the Kool-Aid. They're crazy. Like, just forget them. Because I'm just as convicted about these therapies, never having done them. And I can't be lumped into that category. And I feel like that's serving a higher purpose right now. For those of you who have listened to the podcast so far, you'll know that Tom Robbins features prominently in how I see and think and perceive the world. And I can tell you the exact moment that his philosophy sunk its teeth into me and hasn't let go. I was lying in bed reading Still Life with Woodpecker and happened upon the following paragraph. How can one person be more real than any other? Well, some people do hide and others seek. Maybe those who are in hiding, escaping encounters, avoiding surprises, protecting their property, ignoring their fantasies, restricting their feelings, sitting out the panpipe hoochie cooch of experience. Maybe those people, people who won't talk to rednecks, or if their rednecks won't talk to intellectuals. People who are afraid to get their shoes muddy or their noses wet, afraid to eat what they crave, afraid to drink Mexican water, afraid to bet a long shot to win, afraid to hitchhike, jaywalk, honky-tonk, cogitate, osculate, levitate, rocket, bop it, socket, or bark at the moon. Maybe such people are simply inauthentic, and maybe the jacklet humanist who says differently is due to have his tongue fried on the hot slabs of liar's hell. Some folks hide and some folks seek, and seeking when it's mindless, neurotic, desperate, or pusillanimous can be a form of hiding. But there are folks who want to know and aren't afraid to look and won't turn tail should they find it. And if they never do, they'll have a good time anyway, because nothing, neither the terrible truth nor the absence of it, is going to cheat them out of one honest breath of Earth's sweet gas. Although this podcast is still relatively young, there isn't a person whose experiences are more fitting for this quote than Marcus and Amber. 
two people whose upbringings put them into some of the most extreme of perspectives, from highly religious upbringings, in the case of Amber, to the discipline and rigor and chain of command thinking in the seals for Marcus. And yet both people, whose upbringings would peg them as being the most unlikely advocates for psychedelics, are now two of the most respected, vocal, and thoughtful advocates who left the hiding of what they had been taught and stepped both footed into a much more real life. Tell us what it was like, you know, to, to get on that plane. You know, I'm very curious to know what the experience of going and having the Ibogaine therapy, and I'd be really interested to know like what what you saw, what you experienced while on the Ibogaine as well. It was a revisit of my life. I went back to uh, my childhood and I saw things when I was a child, you know, with my mother and my father. Also, it was a defragging of, of the mind. And I actually watched my life, or if you want to call it, get filed. I mean, literally, I watched it like folders, you know, flipping together. You, can, you see all these images, you know, shooting past you in a row. And uh, you start to hear a bit of a, a buzzing in your ears. And that, I think this is Ibogaine or Iboga experience specifically. You start getting a little bit warm and the buzzing starts to kind of move around now, almost like three-dimensional. And then, you know, you slowly, slowly go into the experiences where you start having these, you know, these visions. And my Ibogaine experience was uh, very dark. <laughs> I mean, I saw some really deep, dark, disturbing uh, things that I was either had experienced in my life that was, you know, causing a blockage potentially in my subconscious that it was affecting the way I was, you know, treating Amber, treating the kids, treating my life. The medicine, there's no hiding from it. It shows you what you need to see because you know, deep down, when you're acting a certain way, if you have, you know, if you have a big ego, if you have to be in control of a room, if you have to get the last word in, all these things we call your ego that gets in the way, you can't hide from it during your experience. You're going to 100% face it and you're going to see how that's affecting you during your experience. And when you see how it's affecting other people, you realize that you shouldn't be doing that anymore. And so... You come out of your experience, kind of just reset, energized. So I think growing up, uh, I was put into school early. And so I was always a younger kid going up against older kids. And I was younger, probably weaker. And so even though I was a great athlete, I was still a kid. And so I was constantly picked on and kind of, I don't want to say abused, but I was like picked on. And then that carried on into college until my freshman year where I actually put on like 40 pounds of muscle. And from there, I started fighting everybody and everything because I think from years of being on the receiving end of uh, abuse, it was my turn. And then I felt always like, hey, you know what? Maybe I should use these, this aggression and this anger into something. And I thought, what not better than be the SEAL teams, right? They're looking for quote unquote warriors and I might as well put my like just anger into that. And some of my deep, dark experiences during Ibogaine was a lot of like very violent fighting and like cutting and knifing and punching. I think it just kind of 
if you want to call it the, the drug or medicine, like beat that out of me. Just going to add, you know, uh, without disclosing anyone's identities, obviously, I a lot of the veterans that have come through our pipeline do share with me. And uh, I have been absolutely astounded by the significance or the, the instances of childhood trauma, which maybe shouldn't come as a surprise. I don't know if that's what it takes to make a really great seal, but I feel like this is an opportunity to break generational lineage type behavior. And so, you know, I've seen it happen with Marcus and our own son. And so I'm praying that that cycle is not going to repeat itself with our son's son and his son's son or daughter or whatever and continue because Marcus has stepped up to the plate to break that. Absolutely. It, it's huge. It's one of the things that like, Hey, I'm, I'm a big believer in the concept of like map map making, right. Which is like, if you change yourself, you know, it, it, it's a cliche. You're Gandhi quoted about it. Like if you want to change the world, change yourself. But when you get into the metaphysics of it, when you really start to dig deep into it and psychedelics definitely opens people's eyes to it. It's like, when you do change yourself, you have actually changed the entire world, you know, and, and future generations of those around you. Marcus, have you done any psychedelic therapy since the Ibogaine therapy? I have, you know, I'm a proponent of it now. I think it should be done uh, regularly for some people. I think it's person by person again. So I think it's like everything else. If I, take ibuprofen because I have a headache, you may need Tylenol and ibuprofen doesn't work for you. Well, what, you know, Amber and I realized is I need a reset, whether that's once a year or twice a year. I've had several ketamine assisted therapies, which I think are, we said, phenomenal for certain, you know, ideations that, you know, you just can't get out of your mind. I've done a psilocybin assisted therapy. I was ha just having some struggles at the moment at the time. And my therapist said, Hey, I'm available. You know, I think that this would really benefit you. Um, I've had a few 5-MEO DMT sessions. There's still a few things I want to experience. Can you talk about some of the things you found, Amber, in terms of the science? And then I'd love to hear about how this experience translated into vets and, and where you hope to go with vets. By the time we found Ibogaine, we didn't know what we were really getting into or what we were in for. We were just that desperate. And so I noticed three key components that were addressed after the experience. That was a deep psychological purging for Marcus. It was also a complete addiction disruptor. I began is typically used for addiction disruption even though he may not have been a full-blown alcoholic. He definitely had substance abuse disorder with alcohol, and that was gone. The third component of his Ibogaine experience was the return of his neurological functioning. Prior to Ibogaine, he was almost reminding me of my grandmother who had recently passed from Alzheimer's when she was first diagnosed. I watched him try to wrap a Christmas tree and he couldn't figure out where the lights plugged in to one another, to the wall, where did it start, where did it stop? It was terrifying. And he was embarrassed by that. It was like there was just this brain circuitry issue where he just wasn't making the connection. He was also forgetting people's names, forgetting where he was driving. 
forgetting really, really important conversations that we had had about specific topics. And then, you know, a day or two later, it was like, we had never talked about it before. It was terrifying to me. So knowing what, you know, had been disclosed to the community about this brain autopsy, that, you know, blast scarring was becoming more concerning. CTE had been thrown around. I knew that it was more than PTSD. It was more than a psychological condition. There was a physiological component that seemed to have been at least somewhat addressed. And so I just was like, someone please listen to me. There is something that has happened on a physiological level here. And luckily we were connected with the researcher at Stanford who basically validated my hypothesis. Like, yeah. You know, ibogaine has very unique properties to promote the growth of nucleal cells in the brain. So we have a partnership with Stanford to look at SEALs or special operations soldiers who are choosing to have ibogaine therapy. And um, they're looking, you know, at, at physiological markers as well as the, the psychological assessments prior to ibogaine and post ibogaine. I mean, what started VETS was the weekend I had my treatment after I was done, I saw Amber in the hallway and we just embraced. And I said, hey, we have to share. Like everybody needs to know about this. And whatever we need to do to tell our friends, tell our team, my teammates that are struggling and everybody else who's struggling, whether they're athletes or, you know, people who were in a car accident and they have mild traumatic brain injury from it. Like they need to know what's out there. And so we just said, hey, we got to go raise money. We got to start a nonprofit. We got to start helping people. And that was basically the conversation. And it was very challenging for us to even think about putting ourselves out there because it really is the antithesis of the community. The ones that you see out front are, you know, in an individualized capacity is typically very shunned. And so it was a lot for us to think about that and a lot for us to share openly and in complete vulnerability because the other thing is you don't talk about your struggles. And I can tell you on my end, like when I, I talk to these families day in and day out, everyone's struggle is exactly the same. And so, and we also didn't want to put our reputations on something that may or may not work. So we were uh, initially leading a grassroots movement and we were proving the concepts. The first goal was 12 other SEALs in a 12-month period. And then we would, you know, set a new goal. At the 11 and a half month mark, one of my best friend's husbands took his life. And I was sitting in the chapel of his funeral. And I looked around and I saw, um, you know, faces of guys that I had seen and their spouses at every funeral that I'd ever been to. And they were older and they had more medals and they were, you know, everyone's eyes were just like, if this can happen to Chad, this could happen to any of us. And I just remember thinking like, we don't have a choice. We have to speak out because that was the first suicide funeral that I had been to. And I didn't know how to sit with it, but I knew that I needed to do whatever I could to do something about it so that this didn't become the new normal, that we didn't have to go to this chapel for anything other than war funerals. And we just decided we're just going to do whatever it takes to make a difference 
in our community and the the broader veteran community in the world, whatever that looks like, we're just trusting. I'm trusting that same guiding force that has gotten me here. And our organization is is now set up to provide grant funding for veterans seeking psychedelic assisted therapies in countries where they're legal. So of course in the US that's only ketamine. But uh, other approved uses for funds would be ibogaine or iboga, 5-MeO-DMT, psilocybin, MDMA, and ayahuasca. We believe in the power of psychedelic healing. And, you know, uh, the three pillars of our organization are resources so that veterans can seek these therapies, research from, you know, all of the outcomes from our grant recipients, and advocacy. And over the course of the last three years, since Marcus's treatment, we have been able to raise the funding to support uh, to uh, right around 250 SEALs and Special Operations soldiers to date. It's amazing. Congratulations. Was there any pushback? You know, I, I know there's a lot of internal uh, consternation about how is this going to be received? Uh, how are we going to be viewed? All that kind of stuff. But has the process been smooth you know ronan i have to say i feel like there's just a force so much bigger than us propelling us it's been absolutely knock on wood effortless it has just happened in the exact right time in the exact right way whether it's opportunities or paths that have crossed it's been the most beautiful thing and so i'm just trusting we've gotten some pushback of course from naysayers or skeptics but we've kept a very, very low profile. We've only come out of the shadows, so to speak, uh, in 2020. And of course, 2020 has been such a weird year, but we've purposely just kept it very quiet out of respect for how the SEAL community tends to operate. But we realize that we can't ju- it, we can't keep it a secret forever. When 250 individuals or families have received this gift of healing, they start to talk. And so we've run the risk of not getting the narrative right or not or creating confusion as to what we do. Uh, so as we speak out more about this, I think that even the naysayers will change their minds because we just really, we just want to help. That's great. I mean, I think it reflects uh, both like the need and the urgency, but I also think it uh, reflects the the passion and, and integrity and authenticity you, you both are bringing to this. So it's uh, it's both relieving and encouraging uh, to know that the, the path so far has been relatively smooth. Thank you, Ronan. Thanks, Ronan. Thank you so much for both for joining us today. Uh, it's really been a great conversation. Totally. Yeah, thank you for setting this up. Marcus and Amber's story is truly inspiring and can lend hope to anyone experiencing the repercussions of PTSD. Here are three key takeaways from our conversation. First, it is always important to keep an open mind. Marcus and Amber are two of the more unlikely advocates for psychedelics, yet here they are, and their open-mindedness literally saved their marriage and quite possibly Marcus's life. Psychedelics are a tool to access greater awareness, but they are only one tool. One of the most important things I was reminded of in this conversation is that there are other paths as well, and Amber's experience is a perfect example of that. Lean into your intuition and trust it. 
Amber did and continues to do so, and it's made a world of difference to their lives. Finally, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Even though we didn't go too deeply into it, Marcus's acknowledgement about how his childhood experiences put him on the path he eventually chose is important to his personal growth and evolution, and pursuing further exploration of this path will help him on his future growth. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy and produced by Conrad Page. Our researcher is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Marcus and Amber Capone for joining me today. To learn more about their initiatives, check out vetsolutions.org. Finally, subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm.